You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're excited to have you with us today, especially if you're visiting with us. Excited to have you uh, with us this Sunday morning. We have been uh, transitioning from uh, a study in the Psalms to a study of parables this summer. And so, Adam McLeod two weeks ago, and then Marcus um, last week kind of kicked off that series, and we're going to continue that today, uh, looking at the parables found in Luke chapter 15. Um, For all of our dads, happy Father's Day. We do have a gift for you in the back, so encourage our dads to pick up this book on the way out. It's written by our football coach at Trinity Christian School, um, but it's based on the idea of fighting for the hearts of your children, so I encourage you to pick that up. If you haven't already grabbed one of those, I believe it's in the next room over, so um, encourage you to do that. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be today, and um, both Adam and Marcus have done a great job over the past two weeks helping us to see how parables were used in Jesus' teaching ministry. Um, It's important to see that they are not allegorical, meaning that every piece of the parable isn't necessarily meant to represent something. Um, That typically there is a main point or a main idea that is trying to be communicated. And so we want to really zero in on that today, once again, in coming to Luke chapter 15. It's also helpful to remember, as we've heard the last couple of weeks, that parables were used to inform and clarify for those who were genuinely seeking to understand, but they were also meant to confuse and confound those who were already demonstrating a hardness of heart. Um, And so for some, the parables really made everything click. For others, they walked away from the parables thinking, I'm more confused than ever. And it was really related to their rebellious and, and hardened heart towards the things of Jesus. And so we'll see that once again today. Um, that it clarifies and confounds uh, the audience that listens to this parable. So Luke chapter 15, and here's how we're going to do it. Um, There's three parables contained here, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the the lost sheep, and then also uh, the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to really zero in on that third parable, the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to help you see how the first two really set the stage for the third. There's a consistent theme, a consistent idea running through all three. And because of that, we're going to really zero in on that third uh, with our time together this morning. But we'll start and we'll read the entire chapter just to set the context. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. It's those two verses that prompt the parables that follow. Okay, the idea that tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling about the fact that Jesus is receiving sinners and eating with them. And so it says in verse 3, So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came and who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Our summary sentence for today in both our lowest of lows and our lowest of highs. God remains both generous and gracious in his dealings with repentant sinners, inviting us to come and enter into the joy of of his salvation. In both our lowest of lows and our lowest of highs, God remains both generous and gracious in his dealings with repentant sinners, inviting us to come and enter into the joy of his salvation. For our kids, God finds joy in saving all types of sinners. I I put in this sentence the idea of the lowest of lows and the lowest of highs because I think you see both sons as exhibiting this type of perspective. You've got the, the prodigal son who is going to be pictured by Christ in telling of this story as kind of the worst possible sinner, one who uh, totally dishonors his father, uh, totally goes living for the things of this world, and in the midst of that really reaches rock bottom. But then you also have the elder son who sometimes is mistakenly pictured as a believing son who has been faithful to his father. But as we're going to see today, that's not, that's not entirely accurate. Um, in fact, it's really not accurate at all because what we find is that the elder son is not faithful to his father. And in fact, he is self-righteous about his obedience. And so really, he thinks he's on a spiritual high, but he's really at a low Even in the midst of thinking that he's been obedient, he's really at a low, just like his brother. His brother reaches this lowest of lows, but even as this brother thinks he's reached a spiritual high, he's really incredibly low when it comes to his dealings with God. We're going to see how God interacts with with both through this father, how he interacts with the prodigal son, but then also the elderly son too. Uh, the response that he gives to this individ- to both individuals uh, in conversation. Perspective is, is really key when it comes to understanding this parable. Uh, perspective as to what's going on, uh, perspective as to why Jesus is doing what he's doing, because if your perspective is off, you're going to potentially misunderstand the data that's before you, right? So this week, uh, we were driving over to the Schwartings' house to go swimming, and AJ was, was in the car, and he was talking, and he made a comment Uh, As we were driving down Stallings Road, he said, Dad, what a weird place for somebody to put um, a cemetery. He's like, why would somebody put a cemetery where all these nice homes and these nice neighborhoods are? He's like, that's a weird place to put a cemetery. And I said, AJ, what you don't realize is the cemetery was there first, right? Like the cemetery has been there since as long as I can remember. And then everybody came in and built these nice houses around it. And he was like, oh, so it's weird that they kind of built the houses around the cemetery, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's a different perspective. Whereas he thought, what a weird place to put a cemetery. The idea being that, hey, there's, there's actually, the cemetery was there first, right? And so that perspective changes everything when you kind of see the, the details there. That's true for this story too. When you kind of see what's happening around, you really begin to grasp the story maybe in a different way. Because uh, I think 15 years ago, a group of us went and saw uh, or heard John MacArthur preach at First Baptist Jonesboro, and he had just released this book. And I want to kind of recommend it to you. It's called A Tale of Two Sons. It's a book that he wrote on this parable. Um, and for the first time ever, um, I heard somebody teach this passage in a way where the prodigal son wasn't the focus, um, that the focus of the parable really applied to the elderly son. 
and his reaction to everything that was happening between the other brother and the father. And I think that's important to see because the way Luke 15 starts off, what generates that, these parables, this string of parables, is really how the Pharisees are acting. Right? So you go back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It's the fact that tax collectors and sinners are coming to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling about it. They're grumbling over his grace towards those in need. The worst are drawing near to him. And I put in quotes, the best, the best are finding fault with God who allows that. And you see it other passages or other points in Luke where um, Jesus is accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke 5.30 is one of those places. Um, And Jesus tells the people, He says, I came to save the lost. I came to save those in need. And so he clarifies what he's even doing. Um, But it's what's happening here that gives us the perspective as to why Jesus begins to share this string of parables. Now, what, what, what ideally you would hope to see is that tax collectors and sinners, kind of the worst of the worst coming to Jesus and the spiritual, the, the spiritual leadership saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them in a positive way, right? Like, like celebrating it, rejoicing, praising God for it. But instead, Luke is very clear to help us see that they're grumbling about it. They're not rejoicing and saying, he eats with sinners. Like he welcomes the worst. No, it's he welcomes the worst. What is he doing eating with sinners? What is he doing welcoming the rebellious? They're trying to condemn him rather than commend him for this. Now, the Pharisees at this time are reflecting what would have been a common mindset in that day, and that was that the path towards fellowship with God is paved by our good works that earn his favor, right? The idea being that um, God was generally disapproving of man, and the only way to, to earn his approval or to remove that disapproval was to be really good. Now, the opposite's kind of true in our society today where our society has really started to minimize sin and has really started to pitch an idea that God is generally okay with mankind, right? So now God is seen more as complacent towards sin, whereas at this time when Jesus is speaking, the idea would have been, hey, there's a general disapproval towards man. God is angry towards man, and uh, the only way to, to appease that anger is to be a good boy or girl. And so the Pharisees kind of have this perspective. And so when the tax collectors and sinners are coming and being welcomed by Jesus, it's scandalous for them. They don't understand how Jesus can welcome these awful people who have done awful things. Their perspective's off. Um, They have the worst possible interpretation of Jesus. Um, and, And what we see from this passage is that they're not on the same team with him at all. Uh, they're criticizing what brings him joy. Think about the ways that they criticize Jesus. They, they interpret his miracles as being done with devilish power, right? As Jesus is working miracles, they decide that, hey, you're casting out demons because you are a demon, basically. You, you have the power of the devil at work in you. It doesn't make any sense to even, to even see it that way, but that was what they, they kind of deduced and concluded is that devilish power allows you to do your miracles. And then when it came to ministry, the people that he served, they accused him of doing it for scandalous association. That you're with these people to engage in their activity, even though there was no evidence that Jesus was ever participating in the activity of the people he hung out with. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 is very clear that Jesus remained holy and set apart from sinners, right? So, so was he active and intentional with sinners? Absolutely. And he called them to repentance. He ate with Zacchaeus and he called them to repentance and Zacchaeus was never the same after that lunch, right? They accused him of being devilish with his power, scandalous in his association. Their biggest criticisms, as we've already seen in some of the parables, is that he claims to be God when helping people, he helps people on the Sabbath, and he helps the worst of the people. Like those are the major accusations is that he helps people and he claims to be God when he does it. And he does it on the Sabbath day. He does it every day of the week and he does it to the worst people. Those were the biggest accusations against Jesus. So the main point, the main theme of these parables that we're going to see today, we'll see the first two quickly and then jump right into the third one, is that God's joy 
God's joy is seen over the recovery of repentant sinners. God's joy is seen over the recovery of repentant sinners. That's, that's the major theme of Luke chapter 15. God experiences joy when sinners repent. Now, these first two parables, there's some consistency here with these two, right? You've got a, a precious item that is lost. You have the owner who's very intentional about finding that item, right? Like, I got to go find it. And when that item is found, there's great rejoicing over the, the discovery of it. So the first two lost and found parables, they set the stage for the story of the prodigal son and the self-righteous brother. There's loss felt when that which belongs to us, that which is valuable can't be found. You, you've probably experienced this before where something precious to you could not be found. It was lost. Um, I remember shortly after we planted our church, uh, the men in our church were at McGuire's and we were doing a, a theology and, and dinner night and, and trivia night. And we were just kind of hanging out and um, it was the last time I remember having my wedding ring. And, and I went into panic mode the next day because I had remembered I always was in the habit of taking my wedding band off and playing with it and fid- fidgeting with it. And I remember doing that at the table. And the next day when I went to get up for work, I couldn't find it where it was normally at, and I just started panicking. And I remember going to work that day, and I couldn't wait to get off, and I went dumpster diving at McGuire's trying to find my wedding band. Um, only to find out later that evening when I put on my shorts that I wear when I, when I got home that I had stuck it in my pocket because I'd fallen asleep on the, uh, on the floor the night before. Um, but there was this, ex- this intense like exhilaration of finding something that was so precious to me, something that was lost. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that my daughter uh, misplaced her, her penguin, her, her, her stuffed animal, and um, we, we didn't know where it was, and we started to conjure up the worst possible things that could have happened to it to the point that uh, Lauren and I had convinced ourselves that we had left it on the bumper of our vehicle, and it had fallen off somewhere as we were driving around that day. And so I remember driving around Sonoy and Sharpsburg looking, looking for a penguin in the middle of the night, uh, only to find that Mally had left it in her bed under the covers where we had looked five times before, and, and it wasn't there, and then somehow it miraculously showed up. But again, just the, the, the celebration of finding something that was so precious to my child that, that really couldn't be replaced, uh, be able to find that. Like, that's the joy that's being described with this sheep and this coin. And then what Jesus is trying to say is, take that and multiply it infinitely. And that's the joy experienced in heaven when a sinner repents. This great joy of what's lost being found. Now, in the first two parables, you've got um, non-moral objects that are accidentally separated from their owner, right? So the Pharisees are hearing these parables, and I'm, I'm assuming they're thinking like, okay, great, like, yeah, who doesn't celebrate when they lose something and find it? There's no tension, really, in these first two parables. It's pretty straightforward. Items lost, items found, we celebrate over it. Maybe the only extreme thing that we find here is that parties are being thrown over lost items being found, right? I didn't throw a party when I found my wedding ring. I didn't throw a party when I found Penguin. Um, but, but the picture here is that, man, there is such joy that like the extreme response would be to throw a party when a lost item is found. And again, magnify that greatly, and that's the joy in heaven when a sinner repents. But these two parables set up the third because we move from a non-moral object to a human being. And the prodigal story is a question for us. How will Jesus now react when the object willfully leaves and then tries to return? Right? So the first two, these objects are lost accidentally, and the owner goes and finds them and secures them once again. In the third parable, the object leaves on its own. Right? The son says, I'm leaving. He is lost willfully. And then he's going to try to come back. And what will the response be of the, of the owner now, the father now? How will he respond to the son willfully leaving and now trying to come home? It's a mistake to think of this parable as only being about the prodigal son because there's two targeted audiences with the parable. Remember, tax collectors and sinners are drawing near, and the Pharisees are there grumbling. Again, it's a mistake to see this as simply a parable about the prodigal son and what it looks like to repent of sins. It's certainly part of what's happening here and certainly a piece of what we want to take away from it today. 
But the other audience is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are represented by the elderly son. And we don't want to miss what Jesus is trying to teach there as well. So you have the prodigal who represents the typical sinner who repents, the father who represents Jesus and his divine grace, and then the elderly son who represents the Pharisee who is being pictured as a self-righteous individual who doesn't see a need to repent of anything in his life. He's a hypocrite, sees no need for repentance. And the question will become for us as we leave today, how will we react to the father's love that's shown here? The goal is that sinners would keep coming and don't let others detract you from coming. The goal also would be for those of us that think we are saints, who think we have it figured out, that we would start coming once again to him, that we would see that in our self-righteousness, we are desperately in need of him, just as the prodigal son is. We are desperately in need of our father's love for us. There's some key truths that we see uh, in in these parables, and I want to highlight these real quickly, and then we're going to jump into uh, our, our outline of two points of application. Number one, the souls of man are valuable to God, right? Lest we think that, that we are invaluable to God, God has made us valuable, not because we are valuable in and of ourselves. We haven't done anything to earn value or to create value, but God has deemed us valuable. When we are lost, he wants to find us. Secondly, being separated from God is not healthy for us, and repentance is the key step in coming back to God, Right? These, these items that are lost are better when they are found in, in every one of these cases, right? So even the prodigal son who thinks he knows better than his dad and leaves in a wayward way, he is better at home with his dad, right? Um, number three, the rescue and return of lost man brings God great joy. That was what was at stake. The, the criticism about sinners coming to Jesus and the joy that that was creating, the Pharisees are criticizing that. These parables reinforce the idea that the rescue and return of lost man brings God great joy. And number four, God is anxiously working for and anticipating our return to him. And don't miss this either, because I think a, a misnomer sometimes that we have about God in our minds is that when we come confessing and repenting to him, whether it's the first time for salvation or whether it's that ongoing idea of repenting, if we're not careful, we have in this, in this mind of ours a picture of God who is kind of begrudgingly sitting there saying, well, here you are again, right? Here you are again with the same faults and having to repent once again. How many times are you going to take before you learn your lesson, right? Almost this, this begrudgingly like, yeah, I guess I'll take you back. Yeah, I'm supposed to keep loving you. Man, the picture of the father in this story, we're, we're going to hone in on that before we leave today it's unbelievable if you will picture yourself in this spot coming to God in repentance and seeing his response to you. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel because we don't have a begrudging God who hesitates in forgiving us. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. All right, so let's jump into the text. Number one, remember God's generous grace to fight sinful actions. Remember God's generous grace to fight sinful actions. We're going to see first the prodigal son. We're going to see how he falls into sin. And we're going to see how he comes out of that sin through repentance. Psalm chapter 86 verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You're both good and and you are forgiving. Two unbelievable, incredible attributes of God that he demonstrates towards us, his goodness and his forgiveness. Let's take a look at the prodigal son. It said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So the father divides the property. And it's not many days later that the younger son gathers all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squanders his property in reckless living. Who is this prodigal son? How do we understand him? Um, First, he's ungrateful, he's impatient, and he feels the father is restrictive on his plans. All right, the picture that we get here is of of maybe a youth that that grows up in our household who kind of reaches that that status of almost being an adult, and now the tension of being at home, living under the parent's authority is too much, right? And I want to be out, and I want to be free from that because my parents aren't good for me. 
They're holding me back. They're restrictive. And that's kind of the picture you get from the prodigal son here is that he's sick of being at home. He wants to live without the authority. And so he moves to remove his father from the picture because he wants the benefits of the father without the father. So he essentially comes to his dad and says, give me my inheritance, which John MacArthur points out in his book is, is really a call for the dad to be dead, right? Like, like I'm so done with you and I'm so done with our family. I wish we could fast forward to the point where you were dead and I was getting my inheritance, but I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna murder you. So I'm just gonna make this request And I'm going to appeal to you to treat yourself as being dead and go ahead and give me everything that I'm owed and I'm leaving. And the father responds and and does it, right? And so remember, the Pharisees are sitting and listening to this. The tax collectors and the sinners are sitting here and listening to this parable. The father responds. And the son takes his, his inheritance, which would have probably been a combination of money and land and possessions. The dad seems to be very well off in the story. And, and the son basically liquidates everything and gets cash for it and leaves town and squanders all of it on reckless living. So he makes it purchasable money, which maybe even means that he gave up some of the property's value to get money more quickly so that he can immediately start living recklessly. And he spends everything. Right? There's nothing left, and a severe famine hits, and he begins to be in need. So he goes and hires himself out to one of the citizens of the country and he begins to feed pigs. And he's even longing to eat the food of pigs. He's ungrateful, he's impatient, he feels the father is restrictive, doesn't want to follow the father's rules, wants the father out of the picture. We've talked about this in Psalms, right? Do we ever have a desire for God to not exist so that we're free to to live in the ways that our sinful flesh wants to? Do we ever long for God not to be present? Remember, we talked about how comforting it is to know that whether we go to the highest of highs or lowest of lows, God is always there waiting for us. That's comforting to the believer, but it's restrictive to the one who doesn't want to follow God because it's like, I can't ever get away from him, right? Do we ever want to get away from God? This, This prodigal son seems to want to get away from his father's influence. And he's pictured in the worst ways possible to put the Pharisees in the position of the elder brother at the end of the story, right? So Jesus is very intentional with how he pictures this son. He wants you to think this guy's the worst of the worst. I mean, he's, he's living and, and eating with pigs, basically, which would have been a, a huge cultural no-no for a Jew, right? Unclean animals. Uh, you wouldn't have gone near this type of environment to be working for a man who, who raises pigs. That guy's got to be awful, right? And now you're working and you're around pigs constantly and you're feeding pigs and you're, you're maybe even sampling some of that food because you're so hungry. Number one here, the sinner, the prodigal son mistakenly thinks that goodness is found outside of his father's provision. He thinks that life can be enjoyed away from the father. Now remember, father's well off. He's got a lot of stuff. So this, this prodigal son wasn't living a bad life, right? Like he was very well cared for, had all kinds of access to resources and, and things at his disposal. He's living a great life and he begins to think that there is a better life outside of his father. He fails to see how good he has it and instead squanders all that he has given for a temporary pleasure. And he hits rock bottom. And initially... There was probably a conversation in his mind when, when, when he realizes everything's gone and there's a famine, do I go home now, right? He's eventually gonna reach a point of repentance, but he probably pushes back against that conviction initially and says, do I wanna go home and admit that I'm a failure? Do I wanna go home and admit that I was wrong? Do I wanna go home and face dad and tell him, please take me back? He says, I don't wanna do that. So he hires himself out to the pig farmer, right? And he goes even lower than where he's already reached because he's unwilling to repent. And he enslaves himself to a boss, a master, that that really is awful for him, right? And this is where sin always takes us. Sin always enslaves us to a master that does not deliver in ways that we had hoped. I mean, he's sitting around working for this pig farmer, and and he doesn't even have enough money to eat off of it, right? He's not making enough wage money to even feed himself. He's at rock bottom. He's mistakenly thinks that the goodness is found outside of his father's provision. But then number two, the sinner is moved to repentance when prompted to remember his father's goodness. Look what it says in verse 17. 
But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. He begins to contemplate his father and remembers all that he has experienced from his father. And he begins to realize even the lowest servants, this idea of hired servants, um, John MacArthur talks about it in his book, the, you would have had servants that like lived on the property that were kind of close to the family that were really invested in uh, the work of the master. But then you would have these hired hands that you kind of brought in for special projects that weren't really around all the time. They didn't have all the benefits of being a part of this, this bigger family group. They were workers, but they were kind of the lowest of workers because they were temporary workers. That's who he's referencing. He's saying even the temporary workers, not the ones that my dad really loves and cares for and is invested in who have been working for our family for years. Even these these short-term workers, they've got more than enough bread based on how my father pays them. He begins to think about the goodness and the generosity of his father. And he's moved to go home because he begins to contemplate how good his dad really is. He recognizes his father as a better master than the one he's currently serving. And for our young people, just listen to me. The temptation towards sin is always a temptation to who you believe to be the better master, right? Do you believe God and the authority of his word and what he calls us to be and do? Is that better than the things of this world? Because the things of this world will master you as well. You will be enslaved to the things of this world and you will fight to find gratification and satisfaction just like the prodigal son until everything is gone. And you'll reach, you'll reach rock bottom at some point. And by God's grace, the Holy Spirit will get a hold of you and remind you of how good it was, how good it was with the heavenly father. And that's exactly what happens to the prodigal son. When he came to himself, the idea being when he began to think straightly again, when he began to think rightly again, when he really started to think not by his passions and his desires, but he begins to think rationally he recognizes his father as a better master. And he says, I'm going to arise and I'm going to go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but treat me as one of your hired servants. He says, I'm going to arise and go. He's motivated to return to his father because he believes that his father is good. Now he's got low expectations for it because he, he's humbled and, and seeing that he doesn't deserve to go back and demand anything from him because he's squandered everything. But I think he's exhibiting what we find in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, 5, the idea that faith is believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him, right? So he says, my dad is a good dad. My father is a generous individual, and I'm going to go to him, not presumptively thinking that, hey, you're going to take me back, and I'm going to be your son again. He says, no, I'm humbled. I'm going to go to him and tell him, dad, I don't deserve any of that. What I do ask for is that you would hire me like you'd hire anybody else to come do temporary work for you so that I can have enough food. And he returns with a plan to confess, but notice what he's planning to confess. There's no conditions on it. There's no qualifications. There's no excuses. He's returning with very little expectation of treatment being given to him. He doesn't come making demands, but he does come with hope. He comes in anticipation of his father's good grace. He's coming not because of anything about himself. He's not coming thinking, hey, dad's going to look me over and he's going to remember how much he loves me and, and he's going he's to welcome me back. No, he comes thinking, my dad's good to people. He's good to people that he doesn't even know. He hires them and he pays them well, enough for them to eat. He said, if my dad is that type of dad, I'm going to go to him hoping that he'll treat me on that lowest level. If nothing else, he'll treat me on that lowest level. So, so it's not him coming thinking that I've got anything to offer to my dad. It's my dad's just good in general, and I'm going to him because I need help. Number three, the repenting sinner unexpectedly finds God ready to forgive and restore. Look what it says. He arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father's just like ignoring him. 
He begins to speak to his servants and begins to tell them to bring out the best for him. He returns. And, and, and the Pharisees and everybody that's listening to the story would have probably assumed like, okay, like best case scenario, he hires him back as a hired servant. But really, he has every right to kill his son, right? The law would have afforded the type of dishonor that was displayed to the parent. He could have had him stoned. He could have had him killed. And some commentators even believe that's why the dad goes running out to him because he wants to be the first one that greets him before anybody else in the town judges him. He goes sprinting towards his son. And, he, and he's aware that his son is coming home because he's been looking for him. Right? Again, he's not the begrudging dad who's just sitting back going, well, my son will learn his lesson, and then we'll see if we welcome him back when he comes back. No, he is, he is intently gazing towards the horizon. When is my son coming? And he starts to run as soon as he sees him. Could have hired him as a servant. Could have put him on probation, right? Could have said, hey, great that you've come back. Glad you've learned your lesson, right? Things are way better here than you thought, right? And you'll take some time to prove that you really believe that before we welcome you back into the house. That would have been potentially fair in some of our minds, right? Like, hey, like you've hurt our family deeply. We're not gonna just welcome you right back. You're going to have to prove yourself that you really mean what you're saying, that you really are sincere with your repentance. But instead, he, refer, he returns to find his father waiting in anticipation for him rather than reluctantly trying to accept him. The father forgives at the first sign of repentance, and he, refer, he returns to find his father ready to respond with celebration rather than chastisement. He's running to him before he hears him doesn't even get him a chance to explain him. He's already sprinting to him. He's embracing him. He's kissing him. Like he is already ready to forgive him before he hears a word from his son. He, refer, he returns to find his father motivated to treat him as though he never left. Think about that. It's as though he never left. I mean, he gives him like a hero's welcome home. Now think about the Pharisees and how they're thinking about this. Like this is appalling to them. How dare you accept this kid back after all that he's done? He does not deserve your grace. He does not deserve your mercy. He does not deserve your love. There's no requirements given by the dad to prove the sincerity. Psalm chapter 103. Psalm chapter 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is a picture of the gospel. The gospel defies our expectations too if we stop long enough to think about it. We don't earn God's forgiveness and favor. We don't experience all the benefits of it uh, after a time of proving ourselves to God, right? The moment we start repenting, the moment we start moving towards repentance, the moment the Holy Spirit starts to convict us of our sin and we start to turn from our sin to Jesus, think about this, we experience every spiritual blessing that the book of Ephesians talks about. Immediately, right? Immediately those things are bestowed to us. I mean, think back to our study in Ephesians, like every spiritual blessing, the adoption as his son, it doesn't come after a time of proving, right? Immediately the robe and the ring and the sandals are brought to us as believers the moment we move towards him. He calls us through the Holy Spirit. We turn and we come moving and he is sprinting towards us. He's not begrudgingly saying, eh, I guess we'll take you. No, he's running and celebrating you coming to him. The joy of heaven when every sinner repents. Do you see God rushing to you as a sinner to meet you with his love? This was scandalous for the Pharisees to hear this. What it reminds us is that no one is beyond his love. The good news of the gospel is not that God loves good people, but he is ready to love bad people. And this type of response continues after our salvation when we fall into sin and we have to confess that sin and come back to him. He's running to us every time. He's running to us every time because that's his grace. That's his mercy. He's slow to anger and he's steadfast in love. Slow to anger, fast to forgive. 
That's the picture of our Heavenly Father, and it's found here in Luke 15. And what's shocking is how the rest of the story plays out and the response of the other son to it. Father says, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put on a ring on his hand, show, uh, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He's lost and he's found. And they begin to celebrate. And if it had ended right there, that's how all the other parables had ended prior to this, right? Item is lost, item is found, and it's celebrated. That's exactly what happens here. The son was lost, the son has been found, and he is celebrated in his return. But the point of these parables is the teaching point that comes next, and it's for the Pharisees. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. Angry and refused to go in. Number two, remember God's generous grace to fight sinful attitudes. The prodigal son remembered God's generous grace. He fought against his sinful actions and he came home and he repented. The elderly brother needs to remember God's generous grace too to fight against his sinful attitude because here's where his attitude has gone wrong. He's angry. His father comes out to find out, why are you not coming in? Why are you not celebrating with us? He answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But then this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. He's angry and he wants to fight about it. He feels underappreciated, mistreated, and get this, he feels the father owes him an explanation. And for some of us, we read this and we say, he's got a point. I mean, this guy's been faithful. He stayed home. He did his job. He was responsible. He, he stayed with the father. How are we not celebrating him? Why are we not affirming him? Why is the one who made the poor choice getting all the attention? Why are we not giving him attention? But think about what he's doing here. He is basically accusing his father of eating with sinners, just like the Pharisees were doing. He's appalled at his father's openness to forgive. Now, here's the thing. The, the more you kind of dissect what he's saying here is that he probably had an inward longing for all the same things as his brother. He just didn't have the courage to leave home. And he tried to go about it a different way. But he's unmotivated to rejoice with his father and instead moves to remove his father from the picture due to his pride and anger. He wants his father to be different. In all actuality, he left the farm too. Physically, he was there, but he wasn't with his father. He wasn't on his father's side. In fact, the way that he describes working for his dad sounds like you would have described working for the pig boss. Is that I've, I've been a slave to you and it hasn't paid off. Right? Remember, remember the other son is like, hey, I'm going back to dad because dad pays well. Like Dad takes care of people. And the elderly son, the one who has been taken care of the most, because when this inheritance would have been split, he would have gotten double the, what the other son had gotten. Right? He's been well taken care of, and he's saying, you know what? This has not paid off for me. Like Following you has not paid off for me. He sees himself enslaved to a master who he really doesn't want to obey. Number one here, the self-righteous mistakenly thinks that God needs to repent for his lack of provision. What a scary place to be. When you are in a mindset that God needs to ask you for forgiveness for how he's treated you. But that's exactly where this son has gotten. He comes to his dad and says, dad, you're doing the wrong thing. You owe me an apology because I've been faithful to you and you have not paid me for it. Leon Morris says, the proud and self-righteous always feel that they are not treated as well as they deserve. Going back to what we talked about in Psalms, where God gives us our lot lines, he gives us our property lines, this brother is not content with his circumstances. He says, my devotion to you hasn't paid off. And here's the mistake that he's making, and here's where I've told you we make the mistake too. If we think that this world is the best that we get for following God, man, we are gravely mistaken. 
what he has promised in the future that we enjoy with him forever causes everything in this world to pale in comparison. And that's what, that's what dad reminds him of. He says, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. Like when I die, you're getting everything. Like this isn't everything for you yet. You haven't experienced the fullness yet. But he thinks that God needs to repent for his lack of provision, that his dad needs to repent for not taking well care of him. Number two, the self-righteous is moved to judgment and self-vindication when prompted to remember the sins of others, right? He says, dad, you owe me because I've been faithful. I've not disobeyed you at all. But brother over here, look at all the things that he's done. He can recount and potentially even embellish the sins of his brother because odds are he didn't really know everything that his brother was involved in, but he brings up prostitutes and, and properties and whatnot. He's probably embellishing the fact that, hey, brother did all this awful stuff, and, and I can't think of anything that I've done, right? He, he is a pro at the sins of others, and he's an amateur at seeing his own sins. His greatest sin is his inability to keep the greatest of the commandments, Right? Love God and love others, and he has no love for his brother here. Doesn't love his brother. He's unwilling to forgive. He's so focused on himself. He's so focused on all the things that he's done for his dad and how dad owes him. Think about what he's doing here. He's trying to reverse the gospel because the gospel says that we are treated in ways that we do not deserve because what we deserve is something awful. And this son is saying, no, I want to go back to being treated how we uh, have deserved because I think I deserve a lot from you. He's totally mistaken about his standing before his father. Number three, the self-righteous unexpectedly ends up estranged from the father. So this is the crazy ending of the story here is that the son who has been so awful is celebrating with his dad by the end of the story. And the son who really never left home is the one that's on the outside looking in. Because he refuses to go in. He refuses to celebrate what makes his father happy. His dad says, son, you're always with me. All this money is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. Rather than rejoicing over the things that bring God joy, the self-righteous grumbles and complains about the fairness of God. Note how the father is both loving and patient with both of these sons. And how he extends the same invitation to both. Right? He's so patient with the elderly son who's basically dishonoring him as well. He's saying, you're not good to me. You didn't take care of me. You owe me an apology. You should repent of your misprovision towards me. Father's still loving and patient with him in spite of his dishonor. The question as we kind of leave today now is, how will we respond to the kindness of God to sinners? Remember our summary sentence, in our lowest of lows and our lowest of highs, God remains both generous and gracious in his dealings with repentant sinners, inviting us to come and enter into the joy of his salvation. We are seeing who God is through these parables. He is a loving, gracious, slow to anger God who welcomes the worst of the worst. But a lot of us don't consider ourselves to be the worst of the worst. We don't want to admit that we're the elderly son. That's where a lot of us would categorize ourselves if we're honest that we think we've done a lot of good and that if God is shelling out anything, he ought to be shelling it out to us, that we are owed. And if he doesn't start paying up, then it's not worth it. That's a dangerous place to be because this parable ends without really a, a climactic conclusion. Does the son respond to his dad and go in or does he continue to stay on the outside? And John MacArthur ends his book in a way that, I, that I'd never really heard before, but he says, The elderly son is the Pharisee, right? And we know how this story ends because the elderly son kills his dad, right? Because that's what they do to Jesus. They get so fed up with how he treats sinners and tax collectors and his extension of forgiveness and love that they kill him. Now, the prodigal son at the beginning had said, I wish you were dead, I want all your stuff. The elderly son says, I'm gonna kill you because I don't like who you are. I don't like the way that you deal with people. What a scary place to be that in his self-righteousness, the Pharisee thinks that he is so well off before God, and yet he is so far. He is so far. The tax collectors, 
the sinners. They're coming and drawing near to him, something that should be celebrated. We should see this and say, praise God that you don't reject me. Praise God that you don't reject me when I am the prodigal son who deserves, deserves your punishment and your rejection. You welcome me and you run to me. The Pharisees are like, I don't like that type of God. I don't want to serve that type of God. The Pharisees would rather the story end with the father repenting to the elderly son, banishing the brother, and elevating the elderly son to his proper status. And that's not the gospel. That's not how we attain fellowship with our father. It's based on his generosity and his grace because we deserve far less. And he lavishes his blessings upon us. Two points of application. If you see yourself more in the prodigal camp, you need to recognize your sin and come to the one who is running to you. Man, don't, don't delay. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how low of a, of a low you have hit. You turn to him and he's already running to you. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to forgive. And on and a side note, we need to be that type of person who's ready to forgive others in that way too. Right? We, need to, we need to break free from the mindset that you need to prove yourself to me before I forgive you. Because we are called to forgive like our Heavenly Father. We ought to be running to people when they turn towards us. Not begrudgingly saying, you're going to have to prove yourself before I forgive you. Number two, recognize your self-righteousness and be careful that your faithfulness isn't actually faithless. This is probably where a lot of us need to land is that, man, we need to see that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Even as believers, that we need to keep running back to Him. Right? We need to keep running back to Him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this story. We thank you that you are the type of God who celebrates and finds great joy in sinners repenting. God, we are thankful that you are not a God who, uh, who begrudgingly accepts people to you. That you're in the business of intentionally seeking us out and finding us and rescuing us and bringing us home. Like the shepherd who puts the sheep on his shoulders and carries him home like the woman who finds the coin and celebrates, like the dad who comes running to his son as he crosses the horizon. God, we praise you and thank you that you are a God who loves, who is slow to anger and fast to forgive. For those of us that are saved, God, we thank you once again for our salvation. God, help us to keep running back to you when we wander. Help us to see that we come running back to you and you meet us before we get going. You are good and gracious. And God, help us to remember your graciousness and your goodness to fight against sin when we are tempted towards it. Help us to see that you are a good father that's worth following. God, help us to fight against our self-righteous tendencies to think that we have earned anything from you to the point that we become discontent when you're not doing things the way that we want you to do them. God, help us to fight that mindset. Help us to see the warning signs about the Pharisees and and the ways that they grumbled and complained. God, help us to fight against that. Help us to learn from that. God, break us of our our self-righteousness. Break us of our spiritual pride. Humble us. Help us to see that, that all of us are sinners in need of a Savior. Help us to see that you're the type of Father who is loving and patient to both kinds, and that you invite all of us to come in and celebrate with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.